So I want to start with three statements that I'm pretty confident that not going to have a lot of pushback or disagreement on. The, the, the first one is that in, in this world that we all experience stress, right? I think you're Christian, you're atheist, you're Muslim, you're Buddhist, you're whatever. You're not going to disagree with that. I mean, if you're like, oh, I know I don't have any stress. I bet the people around you have a whole lot of stress. <laughs> you're just maybe kind of missing who the source of the stress is. <laughs> but we, we all have stress in our lives, right? Second, sometimes we become anxious when we experience stress. Stress is external. Stress is something that maybe we don't create. Somebody else, something else is bringing it on us. But how we respond, then the internal part, we're going to have anxiety, we're going to have peace. So we all have stress. Sometimes, though, we become anxious when we're dealing with stress. In fact, anxiety is one of the biggest mental health issues that we face as a society today. Uh, there's an article in the New York Times uh, this goes back pre-COVID, but it said that according to data from the National Institute of Mental, Mental Health, about 38% of girls ages 13 through 17 and 26% of boys have some kind of anxiety disorder. I, I actually think amongst some teenagers today, that's almost like, uh, like a cool thing. Um, on college campuses... They say that now anxiety is running well ahead of depression as, as a mental health uh, disorder. And so we have stress. Sometimes we respond with anxiety. Sometimes it can become very bad. But then I think the third statement that, again, we're going to agree with is that all of us desire peace. Right? I mean, deep down... Don't we want to feel peace even as we face the challenges of life? But the question is, how do we actually experience peace instead of anxiety? Now, when we talk about anxiety, I'm going to use a definition by a Christian counselor who's written uh, basically what would be, I guess, described as a Christian counseling manual. His name is Gary Collins. He defines anxiety as an inner feeling of apprehension, uneasiness, concern, worry, and or dread that is accompanied by heightened physical arousal. In times of anxiety, the body appears to be on, uh, on alert, ready to flee or, or, or fight. Now, just to maybe be a little more precise, what, I'm what we're really going to deal with today is what the Bible calls anxiety, worry, uh, fear. I'm not just talking about like a, a physiological kind of thing. I mean, sometimes you can be anxious because something going, is going on physically, something's out of whack hormonally or with some organ in your body. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about just like a fight or flight kind of uh, immediate reaction where like if, if somebody, you know, comes up to you with a gun you're, and you get anxious, that's, that's just a reaction. That's not a, a sinful kind of thing. We're not really talking about like if, if you hate public speaking and you got to stand up in front of the class and you have some nerves over that, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, what we're talking about is when, you know, spiritually and then manifested emotionally, 
that we, we experience in our lives anxiety, worry that comes from the root of us not trusting God. That, that, that's really more of, of what we're dealing with today. So uh, let, let's talk about emotions for a minute, okay? Because I'm, I'm an expert on the subject, right? I mean, in, in men's leadership training, we do Master Life. In the, in the second book, Disciples' Personality, uh, there's a week that, uh, that deals with emotions, which is almost like kind of funny in a way in men's Bible study, right? <laughs> because we're such experts on, on, on emotions. Uh, maybe anger, but beyond that, I don't know how in touch with our emotions we are. But, you know, we, we kind of joke amongst the elders that Roger and I are known as being stoic, and Rusty and Preston are known for being... Not so stoic, uh, the, you know, they, they, they like to cry, and so uh, maybe they should be teaching uh, this particular passage today. You think, Rusty? You don't like to cry, okay. <laughs> but you're so good at it. <laughs> I mean, just put on a Hallmark movie and <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, but the reality is, we all have emotions. The, some people show them more outwardly. Some people, you know, it's more on the inside. But we, we all have emotions. But here, here's the thing with, with emotions. I mean, anxiety or whatever it may be. This is what I think. I could certainly be wrong on this subject. But uh, to me, an emotion is like a symptom of the soul. It's a symptom of the soul. I, I think emotions in, a, in and of themselves are morally neutral. An emotion is just kind of a revealer of what's going on on the inside. I mean, it's kind of like when I had knee surgery 12, 13 years ago, I went to the doctor because I had swelling and pain. That wasn't the issue, though. That was just the symptom that showed there was a problem. When they did testing, uh, you know, it showed that a ligament was torn. That was the actual issue that was producing the pain and, and, and the swelling. And so I think the actual issue in our lives is not our emotions, unless we're controlled by our emotions, which isn't healthy. Our, our emotions are just kind of a window into our soul, a symptom of the soul that shows what's going on on the inside of us. Here's what I mean. If I feel anxiety, it's because I believe that there's something to worry about. There's something I can't handle. There's something I can't control. Maybe I'm believing in this case that God's not helping me out. There, there's some belief that lies behind it. If I'm afraid, it's because I believe there's some kind of danger. If I'm happy... It's because I believe that things are good. And so, so the issue is not how we're feeling. The issue is why we're feeling that way or what we do with the feeling. In other words, think about anger. Anger in of itself is not righteous or sinful. It's a symptom. Sometimes anger can be sinful. I, I think about a few weeks ago, a time when I got convicted of anger because my anger was rooted in pride at this moment. And so really, I guess what I got convicted of is the pride. The anger was just an outward expression of the pride that was on the inside. In other cases, sometimes I get angry about things that I think I would be unrighteous if I didn't get angry because what I'm angry about is wrong and ungodly and somebody's being hurt. I mean, something's wrong with us if there's some things in this world 
that don't fire us up. But then the question is, what do we do with it? Because we can be angry over a righteous thing, but if we handle it in an unrighteous way, then the anger can lead to sin. And I'm just saying this just to kind of help us give us some background or, or, or foundation in that I don't think we need to you know, judge ourselves, judge other people over our emotions. It's, we need to understand you know, where the emotions are coming from. It's what are we going to do with them. It's how we can change them. Some people don't think you can change your emotions. Well, you can absolutely change your emotions. If you change your thinking, you can change your emotions. Let me just show you this. It's kind of a foundational thing. We've showed it, shown it before. It comes from uh, Lori Arwood, a counselor. It's a little different visual of it. But, uh, you know, so think about a tree. So the soil would be our, our environment. Everybody has some kind of environment that they grow up in, they exist in. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, maybe it's healthy, maybe, maybe it's unhealthy, but it affects us. It affects us. It doesn't have to control us, but it affects us. Right? We, can, we can grow up in a terrible environment, and by the grace of God, you know, we can choose to go in a different way, but it affects us. There's some things that, that we may have to overcome. But, but then the roots of this tree is our beliefs. And we'll unpack this in more detail next week when we talk about our thoughts. But are we believing what's true or are we believing what's a lie? And what we believe leads to how we think. But, but the reality is, is, you know, that's like the trunk of the tree. The, the branches and the fruit become our actions and our feelings. And our actions and our feelings flow out of what we believe and how we think. So if we want to do differently, we need to think differently. If we want to feel differently, we need to think differently. And we can change our actions by changing our thinking. It's what the Bible talks about, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. But we can change the way that we feel by changing how we think as well. We don't have to be captured in our emotions. And so if we want to experience peace instead of anxiety, well, what can we do? Well, so let's go to Philippians chapter 4. And again, like I said, there's five commands here. And Bible scholars, Bible commentators debate over whether these are just kind of like disconnected commands that Paul is just... Uh, giving them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he closes out this letter, or if they uh, fit together in some kind of coherent way. Well, I believe they fit together in some kind of coherent way. Now, obviously, they're just commands to be obeyed. In other words, if, if we want to honor the Lord, if, if we're Christians, it says rejoice in Him. Be gentle to other people. Don't be anxious, but uh, pray. Uh, meditate on the, think, uh, on the right kind of things, think in the right kind of way, obey, do what you've been taught, do what you've seen modeled. So in, in, in that sense, they're just commands to be obeyed. But it seems as though to me, because of what he says in verse 7, when he talks about the peace of God that passes all understanding, when he talks about in verse 9, the God of peace who will be with you, that, that the thread that runs through here that connects it together is this idea of the peace of God. And so, while I'm encouraging us to you know, do what Scripture says and just to obey these commands, just to obey these commands, I also see these, and this is where the title of the message comes from, is, is keys that when we live this out, that will help us to experience the peace of God in our lives. I'm not trying to present it as some kind of magic formula, but uh, I am saying what I think Scripture is saying, that... The more we do these things, 
the more of God's peace that we're going to actually experience. Okay, So let, let's look at uh, two or three of these today. So number one in verse four, we experience the peace of God by choosing to rejoice in the Lord. Again, look at, look at what Paul says here. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then, like, maybe he's just anticipating them. Like, always? Like, really, Paul? Like, when things are bad? Like, you're in prison? You're saying rejoice? He says, again, I say rejoice. There's a reason he repeated himself. It's not just random. And we need this reminder. Because it seems a little crazy to us, right? Like, rejoice always? Like, seriously? I mean, if we're honest, don't, don't we read this and have a little bit of that thought? Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, so... This is a command to be, to be obeyed, but again, it's a little bit hard for us, I think. So, and, you know, like, how does this connect to peace? Well, let, let me give us four statements that I hope will try to hopefully help that make sense to us. Number one, to rejoice is a choice. Right? To rejoice is a choice. I mean, it's a command to be obeyed or disobeyed. We can choose to rejoice in the Lord. Or we can choose to not rejoice in the Lord. In, in, in James uh, chapter 1, James writes, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Again, that's kind of crazy, but he's saying when you fall into a trial, know that God has a good purpose in it, that he's producing endurance. So choose to regard it as a joy. To rejoice is a choice. Okay, number two. Rejoicing is an action. If it's a choice to be made, it's an action. It's not an emotion, although emotion may follow motion. Does that make sense? It's an action, not an emotion, but emotion may follow emotion. And what I mean by the last part of it is, so let's say you're going through something tough. The more you talk about that, the more you complain about it, the more you reinforce your thinking pattern, the worse you're going to feel about it. On the other hand, when we make a choice to declare that God is in control, that God is good, that God loves me, that Jesus died for me, that I'm a child of God, that nothing's ever going to separate me from his love, it may not change the, the circumstance, but it can change the perspective on our uh, circumstance. And what may follow that motion, that action, is a change in our emotion at that point. Again, I, I'm not suggesting that we live in denial, that we lie about our circumstances. I'm saying be honest, but I'm also saying are we going to believe lies or are we going to believe truth? Are we going to view God through our circumstances or, or view our circumstances through God? I mean, are, are we going to uh, you know, declare the truth of God over our circumstances or are we just going to be caught up you know, wallowing in you know, the self-pity, which we all have pity parties sometimes, of how things are going? Here's an example. In the, in the book of Habakkuk, in the Old Testament, a little short three-chapter book, one of my favorite books of the Bible, God tells this prophet that he's going to send judgment on his people through the Babylonians. And he paints a picture of how bad that it's going to get. And in verse 16, Habakkuk says, When he heard this, when he heard the voice of God, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones. And so what emotion would he be expressing at that point? Anxiety? Fear? I mean... 
When, when, when you say, my body trembled, my lips quivered, rottenness entered my bones, that sounds like fear, anxiety to me, right? That's, that's what he's feeling. But then this is what he says. He says, um, I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. And, and really, he's, he's not afraid of the Babylonians. Really, he's talking about God here. He's talking about the fear of the Lord. But it, notice what he says, verse 17. He says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the whole fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, he's being honest about the circumstance. I mean, can we relate to this today? He's like, this may get really bad. He, he's not making some kind of positive confession here. He's not, you know, naming it and claiming it. He's not, uh, he's not saying that, uh, you know, every, everything's good, everything's going to be great, there's nothing bad that could happen. I mean, he's being honest about the circumstance, but yet over that in verses 18 and 19, this is what he declares. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. In other words, he's saying, this is bad. This is scary. These circumstances are awful, yet God is the God of my salvation. God is the God of my strength, and I am going to rejoice in him. It's an action. It's a choice. He, he, he's saying, listen, it's bad, but God's still my Savior. And listen, if we're in Christ, every one of us can say, the world's bad right now, but Jesus died for me. My life is tough right now, but Jesus rose from the dead, and I'm alive in, in, in him. God's my Father. God's good. I, I, I'm blessed. God's going to take care of me. God's working out his plans. God's sovereign. God's in control. There's truth after truth after truth that we can declare no matter what our circumstances are. We're going to believe truth. We're going to believe lies. Third, joy is in Jesus and not our circumstances. Kent Hughes writes of, of this verse. He says, Remember that Paul wasn't writing while he lounged in a Roman bath or sipped espresso in Cafe Roma. We must never forget that Paul delivered his defiant command to rejoice whatever the circumstances when it was unsure whether he would live or die. So again, when circumstances are bad... I'm not saying we praise our circumstances. I mean, if somebody die, has died that we love, it's biblical to mourn. But it's also biblical to declare that Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is good. Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is interceding for me. Uh, you know, God is in me through his spirit. God is with me. God is for me. God is taking care of me. And on and on and on and on. Joy is in Jesus and not our circumstances. And then fourth, we're commanded to continually rejoice. But this does not preclude us from being sad. Jesus wept. Paul spoke in 2 Corinthians of coming to a place where he felt like he despaired of life. 
talked about you know, the burden that he was carrying. In fact, he tells us to bear one another's burdens, tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. But you can be sad and choose to worship God at the same time. That's what verse 4 is saying to us, that worship, rejoicing is a choice that worship is to be based on who God is and what he's done for us in Christ, not exactly what our circumstances are or whether we feel like that he's blessed us enough at some given moment, simply based on our outward circumstances. Adrian Rogers said, when you, have joy, it, when you have his joy in your heart, it doesn't necessarily mean your pain or hurt will be taken away. It means that you'll be able to bear it. Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural thing. It's not a natural thing. Joy and peace and hope are all bound up together in the work of Jesus through His Spirit in our lives. Let me give you a personal example, maybe hopefully help us flesh this out a little bit. So I graduated from uh, seminary at Southeastern in December of 1995, and uh, we thought that we were moving to a town called Stanton, Virginia for me to pastor a church there. And about two or three days before at graduation, they backed out of it. I mean, it wasn't all finalized, but I mean, it looked like it was headed in that direction. And really, the way they handled it wasn't a very ethical or honorable way of handling this particular matter without going into all the details. But that left us in a pretty difficult position of we needed to be out of our seminary apartment two weeks after graduation. This is a couple of days or so before graduation. We don't know where we're going. Um, you know, kind of our eggs were in that basket, so to speak. And, uh, you know, that was a pretty tough experience. And so we ended up moving home, living in Robin's sister's basement uh, temporarily. And, um, I mean, just to be honest, I was pretty frustrated with God. You know, this, this didn't seem fair. This didn't seem right to me. I was kind of having a pity party. And, and, and one Sunday, we were uh, going to Manly Baptist Church, which was Robin's home church. Uh, this would have been early 1996, and this was when Dr. Emmert was still the pastor there, uh, you know, longtime pastor there, died a few years ago. And so, you know, we were in church that morning. He was preaching. He was preaching from, I think it was the book of Joshua. But, uh, you know, sometimes in church, you don't need to listen to what the preacher's saying. You need to listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying to you. And that's why you need to bring your Bible to church, uh, where you can look at things for yourself. And this is one of those times where the Lord had something to say to me that was outside of what Dr. Emmert was saying. I don't know. I couldn't tell you what he's preaching on that day, other than I. Pretty sure he was preaching the book of Joshua, but God led me to the to the scripture in James that we read earlier, James one two and three. My brethren, count it all joy when you experience trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And God's spirit just began to convict me that I was doing the exact opposite of that. That I wasn't uh, counting it a joy. I wasn't trusting the Lord. I wasn't worshiping the Lord. I wasn't praising God. Uh, I, I was having a pity party. 
I mean, in, in, in my mind, I was saying stuff like, you know, we have these loops that run in our mind, uh, you know, where we try to run the universe. You know what I'm saying? I'm not the only one who does that, am I? I mean, where we think, you know, we can tell God the way that things ought to be. I mean, that's what our prayer lives are a lot of times, if we're honest about it. Um, but, you know, in my mind, it was like, you know, Lord, we served you faithfully while we were in seminary. You know, like Rob and I were both working. I was in school full time. She took some classes. But, you know, we served a church. We did these things. And, like, you know, I, I knew people who were in, in, in seminary that didn't even go to church. And, like, they had churches to pastor when they came out of seminary. I'm like, this isn't fair. This isn't right. All these kind of things. But the Lord just, the, you know, just convicted me. Uh, of my attitude, really. And as I repented of that and began you know, to worship Him and praise Him, God did a work in me. And once He did a work in me, then He started working things out and lining circumstances up and that kind of thing. And I did an interim pastorate. You know, then we moved to Maryland, there for a few years, came back here, started True Life. And I'm not saying He did all that because of what I did that day. I'm saying that's what He had planned for us. But if I would have stayed in my at- bad attitude and pity party, what might I have missed out on? What do we miss out on? Because instead of rejoicing in the Lord, instead of worshiping Him as an expression of faith, that we're like telling God how He's messing our lives up and telling God everything that's wrong and what He needs to do instead of trusting Him and looking to what He's done for us in Christ and realizing that, um, you know, our circumstances aren't always supposed to be good. We live in a fallen world, but that he's working all things together for our good. And even in our trials, you know what that verse said, that he's you know, producing endurance in us. And I learned and I grew a lot from that. It was, it was really a life-changing thing for me. And, and sometimes that's what's happening when we go through what we call bad stuff. That's really it's hard stuff. It's probably maybe a better way to say it. We need some hard stuff. If everything's easy, uh, then we don't build the spiritual muscles that we need to become everything that God wants us to be. So what's our attitude with this? What's our choice with this? Second, in verse 5, we experience the peace of God by treating people with gentleness. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And so he uses the return of Christ, the, the presence of God, is like a motivation for us in, in a sense, I think. I mean, think about it. Um, when, when you were watching a ball game yesterday and you were screaming at the television uh, about the bad call, would you have said the same things if Jesus was sitting there with you? I mean, the next time you go through a fast food drive-thru and they leave the french fries out of your bag, if Jesus were in the car with you, would you make that same call back to yell at the people on the, uh, about them messing up your order? That's kind of the idea here, I think, as far as uh, the motivation. But he, he says, let your gentleness to be made known to all men. So what's the word gentle mean? Um, and, and apparently, according to, to the experts in this, it's a little bit of a hard word to translate. But Homer Kent Jr. says, such words as gentle, yielding, kind, forbearing, and lenient are among the best English attempts, but no single word is adequate. Involved is the willingness to yield one's personal rights and to show consideration and gentleness to all. Uh, Another uh, Greek uh, book says the word signifies a humble, patient, steadfastness 
which is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred and malice, trusting God in spite of all of it. Now, it's not saying we're never going to have conflict. It's not saying be a wimp, be a pushover. It's not saying not to speak the truth because we're commanded to speak the truth in love. But Romans 12, 18 says, If it's possible as much as lies within us to live at peace with all men. In other words, we should be a peacemaker and not a conflict creator. To, to be a problem solver and not the one causing the problems. We should be the one who's pouring water on the fire and not pouring gasoline on the fire, so to speak. You know, to be careful in, in how we relate to and how we treat uh, other people. Now, I think the question here is, if I'm right about the connection with peace, is how would gentleness contribute to peace? Well, I think there's at least a couple of ways. This would be one, one way there's a connection, I think. I believe that being gentle outwardly is a product of being peaceful inwardly. In other words, you're not going to be gentle with people outwardly if you're not at peace inwardly. I mean, you know, if you're full of if you're full of anger on the inside, that's going to spill over to people on the outside. But there's a root to it. I mean. Have you ever done this? You know, don't testify. I know you have. I've done this. We've, I think we've all done this. You ever, like, blown up at a family member, your spouse, a kid, and it really wasn't about them? It, it, it was about the person you were ticked off from work that day, and, and, and they just got your displaced anger? Um, a gentle spirit comes in part from a peaceful spirit. I mean, there was one time when I was in college, I was playing golf. And I got frustrated with myself and broke a golf club on a tree. Now, that club had done nothing to me. That club did not, or that tree, <laughs> neither one <laughs> deserved to be abused in that way. It wasn't about the club. It wasn't about the tree. It was about my heart. It was about what was going on inside of me. And what I'm saying is, I think sometimes because the peace of God isn't ruling in our hearts, we're going to mistreat people, we're going to blow situations up, we're going to pour gasoline on stuff. It's, that it's not about the people, it's not about the situations, it's about us if we're honest about it. I mean, there's stuff that we just need to let go. I, but second, I think, if you think about it this way, a gentle spirit, again, can't avoid all conflict, shouldn't avoid all conflict. I, I mean, it, sometimes as Christians, we're, we need to have conflict. It's, I'm just saying unnecessary conflict, ungodly conflict. But if, if we have a gentle spirit, it's going to lessen conflict if we're pouring you know, water on the fire instead of gasoline on the fire. If we lessen conflict, it's going to lessen stress. And if we lessen stress, it's going to increase peace. Does that make sense? If we have a gentle spirit where we can decrease conflict, it'll decrease stress, which will increase peace. I mean, some people just blow stuff up for no reason. I mean, I was in Washington last week, last Friday morning. Uh, D-Rob picked me up at the hotel, and I mean, we're like a minute away from the hotel, and 
uh, neither one of us could figure out what happened, but we like there was a guy that was driving beside us who got mad. I don't know if he could have had something to do with the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict had just been announced. I don't know if he was ticked about that or what, but like he pulls up at the red light in front of us and gets out and like starts yelling at us. I mean, people like that just create problems. I mean, that's a dumb thing to do because, you know, what if David's ticked off? What if he's got it? I mean, that's the way people get shot sometimes. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Um, and, you know, sometimes we just blow stuff up. So a gentle spirit contributes to peace. Third command here, and, and, and we'll just kind of start uh, with this, and I'll try to end where I end in the first service. We'll finish this, just kind of pick up next week. But we experience the peace of God by praying biblically. That's what verse 6 says. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, some of you may be pushing back and saying, seriously? Like, you're saying, I just got to pray and all my anxiety is going to go away? I mean, that sounds wonderful. I don't really believe it. Well, I don't think that's exactly what it's saying, okay? I mean, prayer can take away anxiety, but not just mouthing the words. There's more to it than that. That's what I'm saying. I mean, for example, in the, in the Christian counseling manual I referred to earlier, he started the chapter on anxiety by talking about a young man by the name of Ron who was a uh, college student who dropped out of college because he was overcome by anxiety but he had Philippians 4, 6, and 7 highlighted in his Bible. He prayed. He would have said he believed those verses. But he dropped out of college because he was overcome by anxiety. Did that just not work for him? I mean, what's the deal with it? Uh, there's a man by the name of Scott Stossel who wrote an article, a long uh, piece in the Atlantic Magazine a few years ago, talking about his anxiety. And he called himself, he said from early age, he's been a, quote, twitchy bundle of phobias, fears, and neuroses. Even when not actively aff afflicted by acute episodes of anxiety, I'm buffeted by worry. And he, he listed what he had tried to deal with his anxiety. He said three decades of individual psychotherapy, family therapy, group therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, hypnosis, meditation, role-playing, interoceptive exposure therapy, in vivo exposure therapy, self-help workbooks, massage therapy, prayer, acupuncture, yoga, stoic philosophy, and audio tapes I ordered off a late-night TV infomercial. And medication, lots of medication. And he goes on and he names about 30 different medications that he had been on for his anxiety. And then he says also beer, wine, gin, bourbon, vodka, and scotch. Here's what's worked. Nothing. That's sad. That's sad. So, to someone like that, there may be someone like you who's listening and struggles with anxiety, and maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not. Maybe you've got Philippians 4, 6, and 7 underlined in your Bible. Am I confident to say that this works. I am. Because it's God's word, because I've experienced it. But again, it's not so simple as just, you know, mouthing a prayer of God, take my anxiety away, God give me peace. When you break this verse down, there's more to it than that. 
So I want to do that. We won't fully get through it today, but let's look at a couple things. First of all, and this may be a hard statement to hear for some of you, but it's true. If we're going to overcome anxiety, again, anxiety in, in the spiritual sense of worry and fear and those kind of things. I'm not talking about just kind of you know, something that would be physiologically induced, with hormonal, something just out of whack in your body, or just kind of this you know, immediate fight or flight kind of reaction. I'm talking about you know, if we're in fear and worry and anxiety, we got to repent of it. I mean, let's look at verse 6 again, right? If you put that back on the screen. He says, be anxious for nothing. But literally, a literal translation in the, in the Greek, what he was saying to the church at Philippi is stop being anxious. It, it, he's not giving them the command, warning them not to do something they've never done, but the tense of it in the Greek would indicate this is something that had been a habit of their lives that he's saying to stop. And so if it's a command to be anxious for nothing, when we are anxious, then that would be sinful. And so part of the way of overcoming this would be to call it what it is. To, to ask God's forgiveness for it. Now, you say, you know, I thought you said, you know, that, that emotion is just a symptom and, you know, it's, it's morally neutral. Yes, but the issue is if, if we're anxious at its root, it's because we're not trusting God. We, we don't believe that he's in control. Um, John MacArthur writes, fret and worry indicate a lack of trust in God's wisdom, sovereignty, or power. At some point, when we're anxious, we believe either God doesn't know what's going on, God doesn't understand what's going on. I mean, again, we're believing a lie. There's a thought behind the way that we feel. There's a thought behind what we do. We don't believe God's really in control. If we don't believe God's good or we believe maybe God's good, but he's not good to us or you know, God's not going to answer my prayers, uh, something's wrong with me, there's some kind of lie that we're believing. And, and, and I believe at the end of the day, if, if we really want to overcome this in our lives, we have to get down to the root of what we believe, of, of how we think, and, and, and let the Word of God change those thought patterns. But a part of that is instead of justifying it, admitting it, God, this is wrong, God, help me to change, God, show me how to think, uh, replacing these lies with truth, which means immersing ourselves in Scripture. If you struggle with this and you want to overcome it, you've got to immerse yourself in Scripture. You've got to have truth to work with. But, but it's not excusing it. I mean, someone's like, oh, I'm just this way. I mean, one of my grandmothers, I used to joke that she would worry if she didn't have something to worry about. And, and somebody's like, eh, it's just how I am, or it's how I've always been, or it's how my family is, how mama was, how grandma was. You know, this is not a genetic thing. Again, unless you're dealing with some kind of just physiological issue, and if it's, the issue's physiological, let a doctor help you with it. Uh, but if, if it's spiritual, this is the root. But a second thing I'll point out, and, then, and I'll, I'll close with this, and we'll just pick up in this verse next week. The conviction that underlies this is the reality that we live in the presence of God. If you look here again, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the word to here literally means in the presence of God. And so the key with prayer 
It's not how much we pray, not how fervently we pray. But the issue is who we're praying to. Because there's people praying to gods that can do nothing to help them. But we're talking to our Heavenly Father. We're living our life in the presence of our Heavenly Father and dwelled by His Spirit with access to Him through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. And the fact that He's our Heavenly Father, heavenly means that He has the power to answer our prayers. The fact that He's our Heavenly Father means that He loves us enough and knows us and He knows what's best for us and He's going to do what's best for us. Listen to what Jesus, let's read what Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 6. And he talks about worry, but worry and anxiety are really the same thing basically in the New Testament. Jesus says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, uh, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He's saying he takes care of his creation. You're not just his creation. You're his child. If he's taking care of the creation, is he not going to take care of you? He says, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not clothe you, much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. In other words, Gentiles here means pagans, non-believers. He says, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He knows what we need. But he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about his own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Listen, for honest, and again, we'll talk about this more next week when we talk about our minds. A lot of our anxiety comes from the loops in our mind of these scenarios of possible things that might happen that, that we make up that just paralyze us sometimes instead of dealing with what's in front of us, instead of trusting God for the moment, instead of trusting God uh, for the day. We're worried about what might happen 13 years from now. This, 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 this this, this, and this happen, and, and, and these loops run through our head, and, and they destroy us. That's why the Bible tells us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's why the Bible tells us to renew our minds. So, do we believe that God's our Father, who knows what we need, and if we he says, if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we trust him and put him first. He's promised to meet our needs. You know, you say, well, this isn't working for me. Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if you're honest about it? You know, sometimes our unanswered prayers are God's discipline in our lives. And it's loving. It's not mean. It's loving. He wants what's best for us. Sometimes it's a season Count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. He's preparing you for something bigger and better. He's working out an eternal weight of glory in you. Can we trust him? 
And see, behind our prayers, as far as mouthing words, it's what we believe. Do we believe he's our father, that he loves us, that he cares for us? Do we believe that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that nothing can separate us from the love of God? Do we believe that he who did not spare up his own son but freely delivered him for us will also freely with him give us all things? Do we believe that Jesus is right now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us and that he withholds no good thing from his children? Do we believe that we're partakers of the divine nature, that he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness? Do we believe that he's a good God? Well, if we believe that Jesus died for us and that he rose from the dead, why wouldn't we believe those things? Can we trust him? Can we trust him? So if you're a Christian, what what I would encourage you to do is to make it a priority to spend time with God. Because listen, this world is stressful. And, And apart from filling our minds with the truth of the Word of God, apart from talking to our Heavenly Father, surrendering to Him, trusting Him, apart from being filled with the Holy Spirit, listen, if we're living in the flesh... If we're living in the natural, we're not going to experience the peace of God. It's just the reality. It's not going to happen. Because it's something that's supernatural. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Are we abiding in Christ? Are are we connected with Jesus like the branches to the vine? Are we filled with the Holy Spirit? Is He in control of us? So if you're a Christian, you're full of anxiety, I'd encourage you to ask God to forgive you. Ask Him to to, to help you, to change you, to take some of these steps, realizing this is the prayers that's not going to ma- be magically work itself out all by itself. Some things we need to do if you really struggle with it. I'd encourage you to make an appointment with Lori and let her help you kind of unpack that and help you take some practical steps with it. But if you're not a Christian, let me close with this. Ryan, if you could skip ahead to the end, Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So here's the thing. Listen, listen, hear me if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure where you stand with God. You can never experience the peace of God until you're at peace with God. You see, because here's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that God loves us and that he made us and he made us to know and enjoy him forever. But all of us, spiritually speaking, are rebels. We've committed treason against our creator. We've gone our own way. We've done our own thing. And we have set ourselves at enmity. We made ourselves enemies with God by our rebellion, by our sin, by our own choices. But the good news is this is... This is what we call the gospel. This is the essence of Christianity, that God came in the person of Jesus Christ. That he lived the perfect life that we failed to live. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place. And on the cross, he, he will reconcile sinful men and women to himself. That what's been separated by sin, what's been put at enmity with each other, can come back into harmony and unity and relationship with one another, but only through faith in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And see, when we're at peace with God and God becomes our Father and he sends his Spirit to live inside of us, we then can supernaturally experience the peace of God, but we can never have the peace of God until we're at peace with God. So if you're not a Christian, 
and you're filled with anxiety and fear and worry and dread of the future. You need to know the God of peace. And the only way that can happen is through Jesus Christ. So I ask if you would to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And I just encourage you if, you, if you are a Christian, where you're not trusting God, and where there's fear and worry in its place, to ask for His forgiveness. Ask Him to fill you with the Spirit, because the fruit of the Spirit is love and peace and joy. I'd encourage you to make a commitment to seek God this week and to put Him first and to immerse yourself in His Word and let Him renew your mind, let Him change your thinking. If you're not a Christian, God's speaking to you. He's doing something on the inside of you. He's giving you the faith to trust Him. Listen, if, if you know and admit that you're a sinner, you know that you have done wrong, you know that you've rebelled, if you're honest, against God. You've tried to be your own God. You've tried to do life your own way. And you're sorry for that. I just encourage you to ask Him to forgive you. If you believe today that Jesus is the Son of God who died for you and rose from the dead, to ask Jesus to come into your life and to be your Lord and Savior, to surrender your life to Him, to the faith that you have in your heart, confess it with your mouth. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I encourage you, if you have questions about that, come see me or talk to somebody you know here or fill out the connection card. If you're online, uh, let the host know that you'd like to talk about that. But Jesus loves you. He died for you. He wants to know you, to be in relationship with you forever. And he wants to work in your life right now. He wants to give you his peace. Lord, we thank you that you're a good God. We thank you that you're a God of peace. And Lord, I ask that you would give us the grace today through the power of your spirit to trust you, to look to you, to rest in you, to rely on you. Lord, I ask you to pour out your love in our hearts. And Lord, fill us with peace and hope and joy in believing through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, again, thanks for being here. If you want to talk, pray, got a question, I'm here at the front. Pastor Phillips in the lobby. Remember, if you need to be baptized, we're doing that next Sunday. We'd love to be able to talk with you about that. Let us know.